a resident Christian would raise questions about capitalism. Is this what Jesus calls us to? An economic system in which we're maximizing profits. And does this collapsing of Babylon give us the opportunity to create a new economic system that is about meeting people's needs? Welcome to Baptist Without an Adjective, a podcast of Word and Way. I'm your host, Word and Way editor and president, Brian Kaler. On this program, we'll hear from Baptists from across the denominational, ethnic, national, and ideological lines that too often divide us. At Word and Way, we've been informing and inspiring Baptists since 1896. Learn more about us at wordandway.org. This episode is sponsored in part by the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. The Cooperative Baptist Fellowship is a network of people and churches working together to spread the hope of Christ. For more than 25 years, CBF has been driven by its mission to serve Christians and churches as they discover and fulfill their God-given mission. Join the fellowship at work in long-term global missions in more than 25 countries. Join them too as they strive to form healthy congregations and support the ministers that serve them. Put your faith to action. Visit cbf.net to get connected. In this episode, we're going to have a conversation with Tony Campolo, a former professor at Eastern University in Pennsylvania and a well-known author and speaker. I really enjoyed the opportunity to have a conversation with Tony, especially as we are in these very unusual times, and he's going to help us think theologically about what does it mean to live out our faith at a time when everything seems to be falling, at a time when it almost seems that Babylon is falling. And so I think you'll find this to be a fascinating conversation from one of the most challenging and thought-provoking Baptist public intellectuals of our time. So here's my conversation with Tony Campolo. Well, first of all, Tony, thank you so much for joining us on the program. It's a privilege to talk to a person who's a member of the same tribe. That's right. Well, and as as one who has helped me into this tribe, and particularly you know, on this show, we think about being a Baptist without an adjective, and you are one of those that has helped me grow into that role. This is a real honor to have you on the program. And I wanted to start with just asking, you know, these are unusual times, and I hope that you're staying well, and I wonder how you are coping during this pandemic that we find ourselves in. I have very ambivalent feelings. I worry about so many people who are going through a time of tension and suffering and uh, a loneliness. I, I call a number of people, who, you know, widows, widowers, uh, people who never got married, who are living. Last night I was on the phone with a, a guy in Texas who lives alone in an apartment, can't go out. And, and I, I, I identify with their pain and their suffering, and I feel, I feel sad about that. On the other hand, when I say I'm ambivalent, I've really enjoyed the last six weeks, just Peggy and me, my wife and myself, here we are, alone in this apartment, and uh, we live in a retirement community. The food is, that's made available to us, that's brought to our door each evening, is wonderful food. We, I mean, it's top of the line. It's what you would get in the best restaurants. So we get good food, good menu, and we have a very comfortable place to live. And we've really enjoyed the quality time, thinking together, reflecting, talking. Peggy uh, said to me just this morning, I can't remember a time when I've 
enjoy being with you as much as I'm enjoying it right now. So that's the positive side. So when you're asking how am I coping, there it is. Uh, when I stop to reflect upon other people, it's not very happy. When I stop to think about what's going on in my own life with my wife and that time of solitude, I'm really thrilled. There's a big difference between being lonely and, and experiencing solitude. I wish more people would experience solitude. We're, we have a time of reflection, a time of rethinking our values, of understanding what's really important. Yeah, that's a, well, I'm glad that you're doing well. And that's a, an interesting point. You know, I think our society doesn't do well with the idea of solitude, of, of stopping and resting. Uh, even, even during a forced quarantine, we haven't necessarily all stopped to, to rest and to think. Blaise Pascal, who Einstein considered the most brilliant man in the last 500 years, and he, he's in a good position to understand brilliance. Pascal writes in his pensies, his thoughts, uh, all evil stems from this, that a man does not know how to sit alone in a dark room. What a good, what a good mind. Doesn't know how to sit alone. Doesn't know how to be still. Doesn't know how to experience quietude. All evil stems from this, that we have lost this capacity for solitude. Ours is such a friend society. It's go, go, go. We've got to keep ourselves occupied. We're afraid of ever stopping. And I think some of that go, go, go also is is part of what we've been seeing in our society these, these last couple of months. You know, I don't know, for some reason, as I was pondering on some of the stuff that we've been going through with the economic collapse and, and some of the protests that have been happening at state capitals and I was kind of reminded of that scene in Revelation where, you know, the merchants are crying and Babylon has fallen. And, and I know that that's, we're not quite that dramatic of a situation. I don't mean to suggest this is, you know, the end times, but it is an apocalyptic time. And, and as I was thinking about that, I was actually recalling a time that I was listening to you preach. And I won't go through all the time because I don't want you to think I've stalked you. I just consider myself a fan, but I've, I've had the opportunity to hear you on several occasions. And I think this time was, you were speaking to the a group of Baptists in Virginia, and you were talking about Babylon and, and how wherever we live, that is our Babylon. And uh, you made the declaration that this line has stuck with me of that you thought America is the, the greatest Babylon on the face of the earth, but it's still Babylon. And I just always enjoyed that line. So I wonder if we could maybe first set up, what do you mean when you call America a Babylon? The thing is that when I look at a societal system, I always see the society at work in a very seductive manner. And the book of Revelation says about Babylon, first of all, she's the great harlot. And uh, you ask, what do you mean harlot? Well, the harlot is the one who seduces. And I find myself, as all Americans do, seduced into an affluent, comfortable lifestyle. Herbert Marcuse in his... Uh, book One Dimensional Man, starts out with this opening line, which is mind-boggling. Americans have been seduced into a comfortable, affluent, enjoyable, tasteful form of slavery. Whoa, where did that come from? We do get enslaved. We uh, end up being so in love with the things 
of our society. The uh, consumeristic society has gotten us into enjoying so many wonderful things that we don't realize how much of our lives are spent trying to get enough money to buy the stuff that the society says we have to have. If you heard me speak a number of times, very often I'll leap on the line that we end up working two jobs, working as hard as we can to get enough money to buy things that we don't need. I remember when I was teaching at the University of Pennsylvania, huge lecture, the lecture hall in Irvine Auditorium. I had 700 students in that introduction course to sociology at Penn. And I was ranting and raging about something. And the student yelled out, who cares? I thought about that. Who cares? You know, and I thought to myself after that was over, how many of us are able to look at everything that the American society is selling us and seducing us into craving more than we crave anything else. We're ready to sell our souls in order to get stuff that nobody needs. You know, how much stuff do we really need? Most of our income these days is spent on things that did not even exist a hundred years ago. Do we really need all the stuff that we're working so hard to get? I mean, it's a frightening thing. And we become enslaved to the products of a consumeristic society. And uh, Jesus warns against this in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, don't look after these things. After all these things, quote-unquote, the Gentiles, the pagans, that's what they look for. They look for the things that the society can sell them. Uh, We're caught between two worlds. St. Augustine understood this. as He talked about the city of God and the city of this world. We're caught between two worlds, the societal system in which we live, and in his day, it was the Roman Empire. In our day, it's the American Empire. And it's very seductive. It's attractive. It's comfortable. It's lovely. Who can help but enjoy living in America? It's no wonder that most of the other people in the world will risk their lives coming across the Caribbean from Cuba, from coming across the border from Mexico in order to enjoy the good life that America is all about. We get seduced into it. And uh, it's such attractive. It's so enjoyable. And I don't want to condemn all of this stuff. I am going to say it's so seductive that it lures us away from what is of ultimate importance. And here's what it says in Jesus' words. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these other things will take care of themselves. That's a mindset. And it's countercultural. Yeah, and so, you know, we're in a time when it does feel like our Babylon is falling. Yeah. Highest unemployment since the Great Depression. We've lost tens of thousands of lives over the last two months. More than a million have been infected by COVID-19. And so I guess I wonder, as someone who has thought quite a bit about what does it mean to kind of shed the teachings and the, the seductive influence of Babylon and our society, I, what does it mean to live out our faith at a time like this when it seems like it's all falling apart? Well, when we talk about the book of Revelation, and it talks about the fall of Babylon, there are two reactions. There's that of the merchants, 
They weep, they wail, they scream, they tear their clothes, they throw sackcloth and ashes on themselves. Because everything they've invested in has collapsed when Babylon collapsed. And then there's another reaction, starting in the 19th chapter of the book of Revelation. And Lois says, John, I, I heard another group of people, the people of God, and they're all saying, hallelujah, hallelujah. The great horror is no more. The seductive system is no longer there to draw people away from God. And the question I always ask of students, because that's where I've spent most of my life, there's two reactions. When the system falls, and who knows where we're going to end with this thing? Who knows where we're going to be six months from now? We're six weeks into it, and look at the mess we're in. Where will we be six months or a year from now when the system collapses? And here's the thing to recognize. I hope it doesn't collapse in the near future. But sooner or later, every Babylon falls. Every system collapses. Every societal, political, economic system collapses in the end. I mean, the Roman Empire fell. Christendom in Europe fell. And now it's America's turn. Every system falls. Are you going to be with the merchants and weep because everything you've invested your life in has collapsed with the collapse of Babylon? Or will you be able to sing hallelujah because you've invested your life in things that will never pass away, that will endure every social and economic collapse in time and history? Have you invested your life in that which is eternal, or have you invested your life in the temporal things? The Bible talks about a great thing, a great deal about the things of this world will pass away, but the things that are eternal, the things of the kingdom, they will not pass away. So I think that's the big contrast. What does it mean? Have we invested our lives in that which will endure the collapse? If the system does collapse, have you invested your life so much into the things of this world that if this system collapses, everything that was important to you will have collapsed with it? Or have you invested your time, your energy, your wealth in a kingdom where more nor rust doth not collapse? where things do not fall apart. I mean, Jesus is pretty clear. Where are you investing your life? Are you investing it in this system, or are you investing it in the work of the kingdom? As you were talking, you know, I'm, I'm reminded of this idea that, you know, every time something, some system falls, something else comes up into its place. Mm-hmm. And I know we're hearing a lot of people talking about, hey, we need to reopen. We need to get things back to where they were. And, of course, we're also seeing some things during this pandemic that it is exposing the pre-existing inequalities in our system. Yes. That people of color are being infected and dying at, at a much higher rate. Uh, that we're seeing the low, lower income workers are being laid off quicker. And, and so I, I wonder, even if we don't completely collapse, what are some things that you would like to see us as we rebuild? We do a different system as we come out of this pandemic, whether it be in a few weeks or, you know, even in, you know, months or years from now? Well, you know, about, about eight years ago, a group of us called together by Jim Wallace sat down around a big table in Washington, D.C. There were about 30 of us all together. And these were some of the, Jim and I and Ron Sider were the only old guys that were in the group. They were all these new young Turks like Jonathan Wilson Hargrove, like Shane Claiborne, 
and uh, the we came up with the fact that evangelicalism had become politicized to such an extent and in such a way that we're not sure we wanted to call ourselves evangelicals anymore. And we kicked around for a new name and we came up with the concept of red letter Christians. You probably know this by now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, we said, we, we are going to try to reconstruct life in accord with the red letters of the Bible. The old Bibles had, a lot of the old Bibles had the words of Jesus highlighted in red. And Shane Claiborne has carried this most effectively when it says, what does it mean to take the teachings of Jesus seriously? What will life look like if we reconstruct it around the Sermon on the Mount? Obviously, we'd have to be a society without capital punishment, because Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, they shall obtain mercy. I mean, he did say that. How do you believe in capital punishment if you take Jesus seriously when he teaches us to be merciful? Blessed are the peacemakers. Are we moving from Baptist to Anabaptist in our theology? Are we basically oriented towards becoming a peace church? You know, when Jesus said, love your enemies, he probably meant we shouldn't kill them. (laughs) And so, you know, when you take the teachings of Jesus and start living them out, it means a countercultural lifestyle that is totally contrary to the systems of this world. Uh, Take no thought for tomorrow, what ye shall eat and what ye shall drink, and wherewithal ye shall be clothed. That's what we're all thinking as this economic system is on the verge of collapse. What does it mean to live in, to orient your life in such a way that you take no thought for what you shall eat, what you shall drink, and wherewithal ye shall be clothed? I mean, this is totally countercultural stuff. You know, so we begin to ask ourselves, what will society look like as we sat around this table? What will our lives look like if we take Jesus seriously? In short, we began as we studied the red letters of the Bible, the words of Jesus highlighted in red in many of the old Bibles. Do we not come up with a totally counter-cultural lifestyle that stands over and against the dominant system of Babylon? Yeah, and of course, I want to go ahead and put a plug in here, redletterchristians.org, for those that want to follow up on the the movement that you're describing. And there's a, a lot of essays that are published there on a regular basis. And it's a great site, great resource. It should be noted, as we talk about the Red Letter Christians movement, that it's gotten a lot more mileage overseas than it has here in the United States. In the United Kingdom, for instance, the leader is not Shane Claiborne, but a guy that is unknown on this side of the pond, as they say, Ash Barker. He came to the United Kingdom from Australia, and he's the leader of the movement over there. And... uh, They are establishing Christian communities all over the United Kingdom, people living together in Christian community, married couples living with single people and all kinds of folks. Uh, I was with Ash up in, uh, Ash Barker up in, uh, I think it was in Liverpool, England, and there was a young woman who had been a pop singer and had gotten on drugs and her life was messed up and and she came and said to Ash, what, 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 are you, what are you going to tell me to do? And he said, quite simply, look, why don't you pack up and come down to our house in, in Birmingham? 
and uh, live with us. There's about 20 of us living together, and uh, we're having a great time in this huge old house that we got that was given to us by the Anglican bishop. And why don't you come and live with us? And I think together we can work this thing out. And she said, okay, I'm going to do that. What an incredibly different way than I would have handled it or almost any pastor would have handled it. We would have advised her. We would have given direction. Instead, he said, come live with us. Come be part of our community. You'll find healing, not through some teachings of mine, but in the impact of a loving fellowship with other people on a day-to-day basis. The countercultural nature of the red letters of the Bible. I don't think we have really come to grips with the fact that uh, Jesus prescribes a lifestyle. You know, I always am glad we have Paul, because Paul gave us our theology. Interestingly enough, Jesus gave us moral teachings. He didn't give us much of a theology. I mean, if you want to go to, we're saved by grace through faith, and not of works, lest any man, you've got to go to Paul. It's Paul who's into justification by faith. With Jesus, it's uh, very much a works thing, isn't it? On Judgment Day, he's going to ask me, I was hungry, did you feed me? I was naked, did you clothe me? I was sick, did you care for me? I was in prison, did you visit me? I, I, I mean, when you look at that stuff, there's going to be a lot of people on that day who are going to say, Lord, we don't remember ever doing any of these things for you. And he says, inasmuch as you did it under the least of these, you did it unto me. In which he is suggesting that there's a lifestyle to be lived. And I'm looking for people who lived that sacrificial lifestyle for those who he called the least of these. Have you lived your life for the least of these? That's going to be the question that he asks. Paul will be there saying, did you trust in the cross? Did you trust in the resurrection? He's going to be asking the doctrinal question. Jesus is going to be asking us the lifestyle questions. Yeah, that's really fascinating to hear about the Red Letter Christians movement taking off even more globally than in the United States. And I think that that's such an important point yes. for us to remember. The need for, for those of us in have been caught up in this American system to listen to our Christian sisters and brothers around the world and the ways that they have been able to read the scriptures without some of the baggage. They have their own baggage, but not without the baggage that we have from our own culture. The Red Letter Christians are mostly Anglo people like myself. There is a German movement out of Frankfurt, Germany, but most of us are Anglo people. And consequently, before this whole thing hit us, and this is giving us time to reflect on it, as Shane and I have to contact our friends in New Zealand and in Australia, because there's a great movement over there in this direction. The last time I went to New Zealand, which was about, oh, I guess about six years ago, maybe, maybe seven years ago, I was talking to the guy who invited us. Oh, we're so looking forward to you. We know we're going to have a lot of people turning out at the meeting uh, because the red letter Christian people have been in touch with us all over the place. Wow. And uh, evidence that this red letter Christian thing has caught on in other, other Anglo speaking places, perhaps more than it has here in the United States. I uh, think of particularly um, a friend of mine, uh, Clive Cowber. Um, he uh, worked for the, uh, for the National Association of Evangelicals 
working in that area where they do social justice stuff, the humanitarian outreach. In the United Kingdom, he was the hottest thing going. I mean, everybody that was Christian, even those on the liberal wing of the church, knew about Clive Calvert. Everybody knew who he was. He was a dominant figure. And he made a decision to come over and pastor a church in Connecticut, which he did. And it became that kind of a mega church. What he thought was that he could impact the United States as he did the United Kingdom. He came over, he did the same thing, he got a great following. But most people in the United States don't know who he is. And the fact is that America is so big. The United States is so big. The Christian community is so large that it's hard to impact it in any significant way. And so this is one of the reasons why the Red Letter Christian Movement does so well in a place like the United Kingdom, as opposed to what it does here in the United States. It's new over there, and yet it's, it's spreading faster over there. Yeah, so one of the things I wanted to ask you about is, and it's related to this, is, you know, the, the tagline of this podcast, our goal is to have these conversations that are crossing the denominational, ethnic, national, and ideological lines that are too often dividing us. And as a Baptist who has practiced that for years, and like I said at the beginning of the program, you're one who has kind of helped me see this. I would credit you as being one that helped me know what it means to, or at least to experiment with what it means to be a Baptist without an adjective instead of just in my own little Baptist tribe. And so as one who has practiced this for years, I wonder what it has meant for you to learn from, to worship, to minister with a variety of types of Baptists and Christians. Well, I think that the being Baptist is, in fact, to really be the most ideologically equipped to confront the modern secular world in this respect. We have no creed except the Bible, which means we're open to new ways of thinking, to new theologies, to new ways of worship. There is not a Baptist way of worshiping. There is not a Baptist theology. I, I think the concerns that I have about some Southern Baptists is that sometimes I get the feeling that they're trying to squeeze the Baptist into a Calvinistic theological framework. I think the founders of the movement, John Smythe, for instance, over in the United Kingdom, would be shocked at this, the idea of squeezing. And I think that Smythe was a Calvinist. The idea of squeezing being Baptist into a Calvinistic box and saying, here, we've got a theology, and this is it. Being Baptist is being very much willing to explore new ways of thinking, new ways of worshiping, new ways of reaching out to the world. If there's anything that characterizes the Baptist movement from its earliest days to the present, and if I said the Southern Baptist may in fact be contrary to the Baptist spirit in that it, it becomes too theologically confining, I would have to say they are one of the best expressions of the Baptist movement in their missionary vision. I mean, when I'm with Southern Baptists, they do not think in terms of a few missionaries here and a few missionaries there. They're talking about spreading the word all around the world to every country. They take Jesus very, very seriously when they say, go into all the world and preach the gospel. And uh, one thing 
and you've got to admire about Southern Baptists. They have probably captured the missionary vision that Jesus set for the church better than any other group of Baptists on this planet. So while on the one hand I say, hey man, your theology is too confining, on the other hand I have to say, your missionary vision is something we all need to get hold of and imitate. And you know, the Baptist movement really started as a missionary movement. It was not primarily defined as a church, but as a mission. You know, the Baptists in England sending William Carey to India. What an interesting and wonderful thing to do. And it was born, the Baptist movement was born about that. Here in the United States, they, they never got Baptists together and said, let's start a denomination. They got together in Philadelphia, the Philadelphia Baptist Association in the 1700s. Let's start a foreign mission society. Let's start a home mission society. And the women said, wait a minute, we want a women's missionary society. And then we want a publication society. It wasn't until the 50s that the Baptists up north really began to see that, hey, we are a denomination now. But the, originally, it was just a group of churches that got together to do missionary work. That was the thing that held us together, our missionary vision, our missionary vision. We were not a denominational bureaucracy. We were a missionary society. And uh, it was only after the Civil War that the Southern Baptists decided to create the Southern Baptist Convention. Suddenly, a denomination began to be defined in that way. But uh, we were originally just churches, individual churches that were, which had no specific theology. We were going to be faithful to the Bible. We were very evangelistic in trying to win people to Christ. But more important, we were going to reach into all the world with the good news of the gospel. Well, thank you so much for the the challenging words of our of our vision. And of course, you mentioned the the Baptist up north, and that would be the the Baptist tradition that you grew up in, American Baptist, and that you spent much of your life teaching at there with Eastern University as well. And so, I wanted to to acknowledge your Baptist tradition in that conversation as well. I'm very much an American Baptist, but I'm now 85 years old. When I was in college, back in the in the 50s at Eastern, the American Baptist Convention did not have a very clear evangelistic vision. It wasn't turning out evangelists. It had been infused by people who had a wonderful vision of social justice. Walter Rauschenbusch being a key example of a leading Baptist who dominated our denomination, the Northern Baptist, in the early part of the 20th century. As you know, I, I very much am into that Rauschenbusch mindset of social justice and, and transforming the institutions of society, the transforming society. But I, I felt that the American Baptists, uh, Northern Baptists at that time, had kind of lost their edge in terms of being old-time people who were able to call people to come down the aisle to accept Christ at the end of the service. I remember visiting Southern Baptist churches because one of my professors was from Alabama. I went to visit him for a month, and every service I went to ended up with an invitation, inviting people to come forward to accept Christ. And that wasn't something that happened in most churches up north. And so when it was time for me to go to seminary, I decided to go to Southern Seminary in Louisville. I had registered. I was enrolled. I actually packed my car 
with all my belongings, ready to leave in the morning in this old car of mine, heading out to Louisville, where I was going to spend the next three years of my life studying some Southern seminary. The night I was to leave, my father became incredibly ill with Hodgkin's disease. And there was nothing I could do except to say, I'm not going to go to Louisville and leave my suffering father behind. By that time, my two sisters had already left the home, having gotten married. I was the guy that was left. My mother was left alone. I wasn't going to leave her alone with this painful situation. So I called Southern and said, put me on hold. Started dealing with my father. And we took him to the Lankanaw Hospital, which is on City Line Avenue. We say, so, uh, in Philadelphia, you say, well, what's, why did you have to bring that up? Because it was right next door, literally next door, to Eastern Baptist Theological Seminary. And so I said, well, I'm going to have to bring my father here every day for treatments. I'll enroll in Eastern. And I did. And that's how I got enmeshed in American Baptist work. And I went to Eastern Seminary. Who knows if, what would have happened to me had I gone to Southern. I probably would have ended up being a Southern Baptist preacher. <laughs> and there was a dominant theologian in the American Baptist circles who many deemed to be a heretic. I don't know whether you've come across this line yet, but one of the most prominent people in American Baptist circles, of which there were innumerable debates about him, was the head of our Department of Evangelism, Jitsua Marakawa. You need to check it out. Jitsua Marakawa dominated the thinking of American Baptists, pro and con, is all over in American Baptist circles during the late 50s and early 60s. He was the big talk of the town. And he, he molded my thinking in a dramatic way in that he put together traditional evangelism and, the, and what we called the social gospel. You know, he wedded them but in a way that I had never heard before that made me into an intensive evangelist, the old school. So for a long time, I was able to preach in Southern Baptist circles and be welcome at big conventions and all kinds of wonderful things like that. Because my theme was, I too was calling people to come down the aisle and surrender their lives to the Lordship of Christ. I too was saying, I want the close of the service to be to the music of Just As I Am and uh, have people to come down the aisle just as they are to present themselves to Christ as living sacrifices. Romans, uh, you know, the 12th chapter of the first verse, beseeching people by the mercies of God to present themselves as living sacrifices. Come down the aisle. Surrendering yourself to Christ was not simply, and this was a big emphasis in my doctrine, was not simply to believe the theology, uh, to accept the truths of the gospel. It was to present yourselves as a living sacrifice for God's mission in the world. And so when I called people down the aisle, I said, are you ready to commit yourself to do the work of Jesus? And to say, well, what is the work of Jesus? Jesus came, and this became the, the motif around which I built my life and my theology. I built it around the concept of Jesus. We're back to the red letters. Jesus did not come and preach a message that got people into heaven when they died. He says, I have come 
to declare that the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is now. The kingdom of God. It didn't sound revolutionary when I first read it. And then uh, there was a great Baptist by the name of Clarence Jordan, who wrote, you know, the cut and patch gospel, you know, trying to put the gospel in the language of the vernacular. Well, here I was, a sociology student. What does it mean to put the kingdom of God into the language? I have come to declare the kingdom of God is at hand. Translate that into sociological language. It was quite simple. I have come to declare the new regime. I have come to declare a new social order. Whoa. Suddenly, Christianity was not about getting people into heaven when they die. Christianity was calling young people and old people to join together in a revolutionary new movement that would transform society from what it is into the kind of society that God wants for it to be. What does the kingdom of God look like? We're told to pray. Master, said the disciples, what should we pray for? What is it that we should pray for? And his answer was, pray for the kingdom. Isn't that what his message is? Pray for the kingdom. Pray, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Next line is crucial. On earth. On earth as it is in heaven. God's will is done in heaven. question is, is it going to be done in society, in the here and now? Are you going to try to create a new social system, a new political economic order in which God's will is done? Uh, The collapsing of the present order under the influence of this virus may give the church an opportunity to say, what does it mean to recreate the American society in accord with God's will? What will family life be like? What will economic life be like? Uh, Do we have pure capitalism anymore? I mean, we've tended to sanctify capitalism. I believe that capitalism is the most successful economic system that's ever been invented in Italian history. But if capitalism is laissez-faire competition, interestingly enough, the Anabaptists, people like the Mennonites, people in the Bruderhof, picked up this theme. Uh, Will it be capitalism as we have known it? We do want free enterprise. We do want free enterprise. But capitalism, basically making the optimizing of profit the goal of our economic life, can a Christian say optimizing profits is going to be the goal of my life? Optimizing profit, is that going to be my raising debtor? Is that what God is calling me to do, to create a system that optimizes profits? That's Babylon, people. That's Babylon optimizing profits. I'm not against profits. As a matter of fact, I want an economic system that does produce profits because if you don't produce profits, you won't stay in business long enough to meet anybody's needs. But the purpose of economic productivity in a reconstructed system would be a system that is geared to meet people's needs rather than maximizing profits. There's nothing wrong with making profit. There's something wonderful about meeting needs and making profits at the same time. But the primary purpose of production, if you're a Christian, is meeting people's needs, not maximizing profits. 
I hope we do make profits while we're meeting people's needs. We had better do it or else we won't be in business long enough to meet anybody's needs. But the purpose of production is not the maximizing of profits, which is the raison d'etre of capitalism. In short, a resident Christian would raise questions about capitalism. Is this what Jesus calls us to? An economic system in which we're maximizing profits. And does this collapsing of Babylon give us the opportunity to create a new economic system that is about meeting people's needs? The truth is, the present economic system is consuming the resources of the world, the natural resources of the world, in an incredible rate. All the economists, and you read a book like Limits to Growth by the Club of Rome, it's a credit, it was a defining book in the late 60s. The Club of Rome wrote this book called The Limits of Growth, in which we're saying we want an economy that grows and grows and grows and grows. And the question is, are there any limits to growth? Do we not exhaust the resources of the world? The truth is that capitalism has been ecologically devastating. I mean, I took a trip to speak to the Baptist Seminary in Buenos Aires, Argentina, leaving Miami, Florida, and flying over the Amazon. I looked out the window at night, and as far as the eye could see, fires were burning. It was awesome. I mean, from 30,000 feet, you could look in any direction, and there were fires burning. And I knew what was going on. They were burning down the rainforest in order to make room for cattle because beef consumption, not only in America, but around the world had gone up and up and up. There was profit to be made in the consumption of beef. And we were destroying the rainforest, which ecologists now point out, produce 20% of the oxygen that the earth needs in order to have our people breathe. We were ecologically disastrous. What we're doing to the ocean, we're killing the, it's one thing to kill the coral, but we're killing the fish. We're wiping out a species left and right as we destroyed the Amazon. I wrote a book called uh, Saving the Earth Without Worshipping Nature because I was worried that the New Age movement was capturing the ecological movement. Fortunately, we've moved out of that problem right now, but I felt that it was a Christian call to save the environment. And when I look at the destruction of the Amazon, I'm asking myself, every cure that we have developed, for instance, penicillin was developed out of certain fungus that was growing in nature. And I was wondering, what cures are we destroying in the Amazon jungle? Maybe the cure of cancer is just waiting there to be discovered, and we're destroying it. We're burning it down. The destruction of the natural environment under the impact of laissez-faire capitalism is scary. This president that we have scares me. On a drill for oil, where? Anywhere. What about in the national parks? Yes, let's drill in the national parks. What about in the ocean? Let's build little places out there and drill into the oceans and get the oil. Jeez, now we find we got a glut of oil on our hands. The truth is we are ecologically irresponsible with laissez-faire capitalism. If it makes money and maximizes profits, let's do it. And the environment be damned. Well, I think Christianity calls upon us to do what? Eighth chapter of Romans. All of creation is groaning and is in travail. 
waiting for deliverance. From whom? The sons and daughters of God. God wants us to be a people who are out there winning people to Christ, not so that they can spend their lives doing only one thing, winning other people to Christ. That's of ultimate importance. And that's where I agree with the Southern Baptists. Winning people to Christ is of ultimate importance. But we need to win people to Christ, not so that they can go to heaven when they die. We need to win people to Christ in order that they can become the instruments of God through whom we can save the environment, through whom we can change the economic order. So it's not simply committed to, to profits, but committed to meeting people's needs. And, uh, and this is the good news of the gospel. The Christ is at work, winning people to himself, pouring the Holy Spirit into people's lives, transforming them from the inside out, making them into people through whom he can change the world that is into the world that he wants it to be. And so when I sing the Hallelujah Chorus, it's with an eschatological hope. Here's where I differ from those Southern Baptists with their dispensationalist theology, where they see the end of history being the the fire from heaven. I sing the Hallelujah Chorus with conviction. It's not fire from heaven. It's the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdom of our God, and he shall reign forever and ever. Thank God for N.T. Wright right now, who's become the leading Baptist theologian of our time. And uh, N.T. Wright says, the future of the world is the good news that Christ is going to return and that people shall be resurrected and there shall be a new heaven, and here's the word, and a new earth. And the old earth will be overcome by Christ and his people and it will be transformed and he shall reign forever and ever. I see a Christ returning and here's what when I preach. I go to the first chapter of Philippians where it says, and the good work He begins in us, and through us he shall complete on the day of his coming. Yea, I look for the environment being restored, for a political economic system in which justice will prevail, in which there will no longer be exploitation. Uh, We, right now, as, as Americans, are dealing with the fact that a great deal of our wealth as Americans have come on the back of black people who were brought here from Africa. The American prosperity in a large degree was built on slavery in the, and we benefited from their slavery. Well, it's not just Americans. I mean, we, what we've done in Asian countries, I mean, when I go to Walmart and buy sneakers at a low cost, you know, they, I buy a good pair of sneakers at $29, $30. And the truth is that that bargain is at the expense of children working in factories in Thailand, being exploited, working six, seven days a week, 10 hours a day in order to get bargains. How many of the bargains that we buy at Walmart are dependent upon the exploitation of people in third world countries? So don't think that America has a clear conscience. Oh, we've done away with slavery. We're trying to do our best to figure out how to make it up to black people. Yeah, and we're not doing very well on that score, but at least we're trying. But what about the exploitation of people in places like Thailand, in places like Burma or Myanmar, in in places in in India? What about those in the sweatshops of India? We once had sweatshops in New York City. They're not there anymore. They're in India. To what degree does our present economic order 
depend on the exploitation of people in India, depend on the exploitation of children in Thailand. Has Jesus Christ not called us to come down the aisle, not only to be saved so that we can go to heaven when we die, and we're, you're my age, 85, you think a great deal about the good news that when I die, I shall go to be with the Lord. We, I love that. But having said that, his reason for winning me and changing me and transforming me is so as to make me into an instrument that works for ecological justice, for economic justice, yea, for political justice. So it's no surprise to my friends that in 1976, in the middle of the Vietnam War, I started running in 74. I ran for the U.S. Congress. I don't know whether you know that. Yeah, I, I did know that. I ran for the because I didn't run a second time because, uh, hey, the war ended. and I was an anti-war candidate. But I felt that to be a Christian, to be surrendered to Christ, was to be committed to justice in this world. And one of the most unjust things going on at that time was the Vietnam War. I was able to get young men and women from across the country. Christian students came in from places like Malone College in Ohio, from Georgetown College, Southern Baptist School. We ran the entire political campaign on $18,000. Can you imagine that? $18,000. And when we started the campaign, I was running in the 5th District of Pennsylvania. You say, why the 5th District? It's a suburban district. Easy. The last candidate that had run in the 5th District, the Democrat, got 18% of the vote. Nobody wanted to be the candidate. Nobody <laughs> wanted to. They no, just walked in told the party people, you want somebody that wants to run for Congress who will, who will bring together young people to go door to door? I can do that for you. Probably won't win the election, but I can run a great campaign. We went from 18% the first survey. Imagine that. I want you to get this in your mind. The first survey had us, we would get 18% of the vote. We lost, with, but we got 43% of the vote. And the party people said, if the campaign had gone on another month, we would have won. We were picking up more and more momentum, going door to door, talking about justice in Christian terms, talking about God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. That made me very effective with young people. Young people weren't particularly thrilled about dying. They were thrilled, especially in the 60s, about the possibility of a Jesus who calls us to a revolutionary movement. Well, you have given us a lot to, uh, to digest, and I'm probably going to have to play just as I am and, and start an altar call. Uh, <laughs> I grew up in a Southern Baptist church, so that feels very natural to me. So... <laughs> I don't know whether you ever heard me do my mocking thing. Is that I grew up in a church where we say at the end of every service we sang fifty verses of "Just as I Am," and people would come out just as they are, and they left just as they were. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I remember when they, yeah, I came down the aisle the first time. They came down the aisle and committed my life to Christ, and, and they took me in the back room, and I said, well, "What does this involve?" Well, uh, do you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins? Yeah. Are you willing to repent of your sins? Yeah. Do you understand that he took the punishment for your sins? Yeah. Well, then you're a Christian. I said, that's it? I remember saying, that's it? <laughs> Jeez. Please. 
man, there's nothing to this thing. I mean, there's nothing to it at all. And consequently, our churches are filled with what I would call cultural Christians, that they have, in fact, embraced American way of life and think it's Christianity. No surprise to me that 81% of white evangelicals voted for Donald Trump. It doesn't surprise me at all. God is not a Democrat either. Don't get the idea that God's a Democrat. Uh, I think Jesus of Nazareth has his judgment on both political parties. But be this as it may, it's no surprise to me that they embrace Donald Trump. Make America great again. Man, is that what we're about, making America great again? I thought we were supposed to seek the kingdom of God. So there. The call to make Babylon great again is always strong. Yeah. Well, that's my message. Great. Well, thank you. This has uh, been a real joy to have a conversation with you, and it is a real honor. I have several of your books and have appreciated your call, your challenging words throughout the years. And thank you so much for giving us your time. Okay, buddy. Take care, Brian. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Baptist Without an Adjective. You can learn more about Tony Campolo at TonyCampolo.org. And as we mentioned during the interview, you can also find RedLetterChristians.org, a place where you'll find a number of interesting essays, including in the archive section, you'll find a few by myself. As always, you can find us at WardenWay.org. And don't forget to check out our sponsoring partner for this week's episode, the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship at CBF.net. If you've enjoyed this episode, I hope that you will share it with your friends on Facebook, and head over to iTunes or your favorite podcast platform and write a positive review to help more people to find the show. You can find easy-to-share links at podcast.wordandway.org. If you'd like to give to support this program, we greatly appreciate it, and all you have to do at wordandway.org is hit the Donate button. And whatever you give there will help support the production of this podcast, as well as our website and monthly magazine. And speaking of that magazine, if you're not a subscriber, I have a deal for you. You can get one year for 50% off at tinyurl.com slash wwoffer. If you have any comments or feedback about this program, you can send those to me at bkaler at wordandway.org. Thanks for listening.